welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. I passed on to you what was most important. Christ died for our sins, just as the scriptures said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. He was seen by Peter and then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time. Last of all, I also saw him. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 3 through 8 New Living Translation Hello, I'm Victoria K. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. We're very grateful to be able to be with you today. We've been working on a series we call Paul's Places for several weeks now. In fact, this is our 11th lesson in the series. By Paul, of course, we're referring to the Apostle Paul who wrote at least 13 of the books contained in the New Testament. Nine of those books are letters Paul wrote to the churches that are identified in our Bibles by the names of cities, or in the case of Galatians, a region that would be in modern-day Turkey. Anyone who has missed any of the previous lessons can find them on our website, crystalseabooks.com, or on their favorite podcast app. We've started this series for one simple reason to help people understand that the New Testament documents are historically reliable. So today, we want to begin to summarize some of the major points that we've covered during this series. To do that, today in the studio we have R.D. Fierro, the author of a number of great Christian books and the founder of Crystal Sea Books. R.D., what's on your mind as we begin to summarize our series on Paul's Places? Well, I'd like to start, of course, by thanking all of our listeners for joining us here today, whether they're on the broadcast or the podcast. I would also like to reinforce the point that you just made. We wanted to do this series to help listeners begin to understand that the New Testament is historically reasonable and reliable. When it comes to our Bibles, our scripture, two questions are of supreme importance. Do we have a text that we may say with confidence is the same text as it was written by the inspired writers now almost 2,000 years ago. And if we do have a text, can we be confident in the trustworthiness of the account that the original writer wrote? Well, in the case of the New Testament, there is an abundance of evidence the answer to both of those questions is a resounding yes. As we mentioned in our last episode of Anchored by Truth, We are now 2,000 years removed from the time that Jesus walked on the earth, performed his miracles, died, and rose again. And we are almost 2,000 years removed from the time when people began hearing about those events and either accepting or rejecting the meaning of what had occurred. And during that 2,000 years, a lot has happened. Empires have risen and fallen. Civilizations have changed. Science and technology have lifted people off this planet and to the nearest celestial body, and we have communication and information transfer methods that would have seemed miraculous to most people who walked on the earth during Jesus and Paul's time. 
And that has created a peculiar danger for us, hasn't it? That's what you want to talk about today. Yes. We are so far removed in time from Jesus' earthly ministry that far too often today people forget that the entire Christian faith is based on one basic historical fact, that Jesus lived, died, then rose from the grave, and finally ascended into heaven. That's what we heard about in our opening scripture from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul says in that passage that he passed on to the church in Corinth what was most important. Paul said that this fact is the most important fact for the Christian faith, that Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was buried, and he was raised from the dead on the third day. So when we say that the entire Christian faith is dependent on one historical fact, we are not making an overstatement. No, we are not. And I think most Christians have a very good general understanding of the importance of the resurrection. But I worry that in the passage of those 2,000 years that many of us allow ourselves to drift into an almost mystical interpretation of the resurrection. What do you mean? Well, in our day and age, we've seen a lot of movies and television shows that are filled with special effects. A lot of those movies and television shows are about the Bible stories. So we are accustomed to seeing movies and television shows filled with special effects. And we know that those kind of productions are always filled with a certain amount of fantasy, certain amount of romanticism. The Hollywood producers, for purposes of entertainment and selling tickets and everything else, they're going to take some dramatic license for the purpose of making their storytelling more entertaining. So we have a tendency to sort of impart in our own minds this romantic sense of events, even though we know that there is a historical underpinning to those. But pretty soon then, it becomes real hard for us to think about the real history, the real historical event. And that's especially true of real history that happened 2,000 years ago. So we can allow our perception of a plain historical fact to be colored by the same tinge of mysticism or fantasy that we know infests so much of contemporary drama. So we forget, I think, too often that the resurrection of Jesus is a plain, unvarnished historical event that is just as real as whether your neighbor's kid played soccer in high school, whether George Washington was the first president of the United States, or whether you just went to the gas station this morning and put gas in your car. Well, you may have a point. We live in a culture and a society where entertainment producers, among others, try to blur the lines between fiction and reality. These days, it takes a considerable effort to make sure that we sort out truth from lies and distortions, and we are fed plenty of lies by a great many media sources. So, you are concerned that even Christians can lose sight of the reality of the resurrection. What you're saying is, is that we have to consciously resist any attempts to mythicize or allegorize the resurrection. We must continually remind ourselves and others that Jesus walked out of a stone tomb just as certainly as we put gas in our car the last time we filled up. Yes, and the letters that the Apostle Paul sent to the various churches make that point repeatedly. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul is very explicit that if the resurrection did not take place, if it was not a real historical fact, then the entire Christian faith is in vain. 
The Amplified Bible puts it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14, quote, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, useless, amounting to nothing. And your faith is also in vain, imaginary, unfounded, devoid of value and benefit, but not based on truth, unquote. And that is why it's so important that we ensure that we have a solid understanding and that we can explain why the New Testament documents, including the Pauline epistles, are reliable historically. You know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, our ability to do this in order to have an effective witness may or may not have been necessary. But today, we are surrounded by nearly continuous claims that we have to distrust everything in the Bible, except, as the critics will say, in a precious few areas where, you know, grudgingly will allow that archaeology may have confirmed that the Bible got something right. When in fact, the exact opposite is true. The New Testament is filled with historical details and overwhelming archaeology has provided solid support that the New Testament is accurate. And we have tried to bring a few of these details forward in this Paul's Places series, like noting that Paul uses historically accurate terms, even incidentally, like when he described a Roman soldier's armor in Ephesians chapter 6. Right. And in one of our episodes on Paul's letters to Ephesus and Colossae, we pointed out that Paul used the term makira when he was referring to the, quote, sword of the spirit, end quote. Now, like most Greek words, makira is very precise. It refers to a relatively short sword that could be up to 19 inches long, but often shorter. And one commentator has said this about that kind of sword. Of all the swords that a Roman soldier could use, this one was the deadliest. Indeed, the makira could be as long as 19 inches, but it was often shorter, resembling a dagger. Therefore, it was used in close combat. It was razor sharp on both sides of the blade, and its very end turned upward, causing the point of the blade to be extremely sharp and deadly. Close quote. And we pointed out in the episode of Anchored by Truth that the short sword was a perfect weapon for use in the fighting formation that the Roman infantry often used. So Paul's use of the term was both historically accurate as well as instructive from a spiritual standpoint. The makira was used for both offense and defense. So when Paul said that we needed to adopt the word of God as our sword, he was teaching a profound truth. We can think back, for instance, to when Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness. You know, for each of the three temptations that Satan presented to Jesus in the wilderness, Jesus responded with scripture. And in this case, all the scriptures that Jesus quoted to Satan came from the book of Deuteronomy. Jesus quoted from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 13 and 16, and he also quoted from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. And for any Christian who tends to think that the Old Testament was no longer relevant after Jesus' earthly ministry, the temptation in the wilderness should settle that question. If Jesus thought well enough to quote the Old Testament to Satan, that should make it good enough for us. Absolutely. So in Satan's temptation in the wilderness, Jesus showed that the Word of God is suitable for defense. But at other times, Jesus showed us that the Word of God was suitable for offense. And a good example of when Jesus used the Word of God offensively, but respectfully, was when the Pharisees or the Sadducees tried to give Jesus trick questions to trip him up. For instance, when the Sadducees tried to trick Jesus with their standard question about one woman who had married seven brothers, 
and whose wife would she be in the afterlife? They use that trick question all the time to deny the reality of life after death. Well, Jesus used a quote from the book of Exodus, chapter 3, verse 6, to show them the error in their theology. The Sadducees insisted that there was no such thing as life after death, and they denied the authority of all of the books of the Old Testament except for the Torah, which is the first five books of the Old Testament. So Jesus pointed out that even in one of the books that they accepted, the book of Exodus, God declared that he was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what Jesus was illustrating to the Sadducees was that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had to be alive when God made that statement to Moses because God used the present tense when he spoke of them. So the point of Paul using the term makira is... No pun intended. No pun intended. The point of Paul using the word makira is that Paul simultaneously gave us evidence that he was using a culturally and historically appropriate reference to teach a spiritual truth. And the spiritual truth he was teaching was that God's word may be used to both deflect Satan's attacks and temptations, and that God's word may also be used when we need to correct the spiritual misunderstandings and beliefs of others, no matter how sincerely those beliefs are held. And the fact that Paul's use of such culturally and historically accurate illustrations in his teaching and preaching shows that Paul wrote and spoke during the time period that immediately followed Jesus' earthly ministry. And this is quite different from what many critics claim. There are times when Bible critics try to say that the New Testament documents were written hundreds of years after the events they report. You will sometimes hear critics say that the New Testament was created hundreds of years after the time period during which Jesus lived. And they will cite that fact that the early church councils that settled the content of the New Testament occurred in the Council of Hippo or the Council of Carthage. The Council of Hippo took place in 393 AD. The Council of Carthage took place in 397 AD. And since 301 AD to 400 AD was the 4th century, They take some liberties and use the phrase hundreds of years after Christ to date the New Testament. And it is true that in the councils of Hippo and Carthage, all 27 books that appear in our New Testament were affirmed as canonical. But that was not when the books, such as the Pauline epistles, were written. The very best scholarship that we have demonstrates that Paul's epistles, as well as the epistles of John and Peter, were written during the latter half of the first century A.D., mere decades after Christ's death. And that's part of what we have been showing throughout this Paul's Places series. For instance, when we did our show on the episode to the Galatians, we pointed out that one of the issues Paul had to address in Galatians was that there was no need for anyone to first become a Jewish convert before becoming a Christian. At that point in the history of the church, there was still some confusion, or deliberate distortion, about how to become an authentic Christian. There were agitators in some places that insisted that unless you were willing to follow Jewish requirements and customs, that you couldn't be a Christian. Paul forcefully rebuked this falsehood in the letter he wrote to the Galatians. Paul went so far as to call the Galatians who were being tempted to abandon the true gospel as being foolish. There would have been far less need to reject that false proposition, that heresy, that you first had to be a Jew in order to become a Christian once the church had been around for a few hundred years. There were plenty of other heresies that were circulating around 
but the Judaizers' assertions largely faded from view. So if someone had been trying to manufacture a fake epistle in the late 4th century AD and attribute that fake epistle to the Apostle Paul, it's highly unlikely that they would have made as the centerpiece of that fake epistle this Judaizer heresy. It just wasn't relevant by then. But in the latter half of the 1st century AD, Paul's observations in the book of Galatians were highly relevant. And they were even more relevant because we know from the book of Acts that even though Paul had personally preached in Galatia, we don't have any record of him spending any lengthy amount of time there. You mean the way he did in Ephesus and Corinth. We are confident from Acts that Paul spent as much as 18 months continuously in Corinth and possibly up to three years continuously in Ephesus. Yes. So when you look within and across Paul's epistles, you see three things very clearly. First, Paul chooses the subjects that he includes in his epistles with specific attention to the audience that he has in mind, and he chooses the examples to illustrate his teaching very carefully, examples particularly important to the local congregation with whom he will be communicating. Such is Paul's emphasis on the superiority of Christ to all other supposed source of supernatural power and importance in the book of Ephesians. The temple of the goddess Diana was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world and was found in Ephesus. Paul does not demean the local worship of Diana by name, but simply asserts that, quote, Christ rules there above all heavenly rulers, authorities, powers, and lords. He has a title superior to all titles of authority in this world and the next. God put all things under Christ's feet and gave him to the church as supreme Lord over all things, unquote. Those are verses 21 and 22 from chapter 1 of Ephesians from the Good News Translation. And earlier in that same chapter, in verses 18 through 20, Paul had said, quote, I ask that your minds may be open to see his light, so that you will know what is the hope to which he has called you. How rich are the wonderful blessings he promises his people, and how very great is his power at work in us who believe. This power working in us is the same as the mighty strength which he used when he raised Christ from death and seated him at his right side in the heavenly world. End quote. Uh, that's also from the Good News Translation. In other words, Paul was assuring the Ephesians who had given up their worship of the prominent local goddess Diana that they were, in fact, not giving up anything. To the contrary, Paul assures them that they had turned from the lesser to the greater. He assures them that any power they might have hoped to obtain from any goddess their neighbors might be worshipping was more than replaced by the authentic power of the authentic God. This was the power that literally raised Jesus from the dead. Exactly. Now, today we can all understand and take comfort from those words that Paul wrote to the Ephesians. The Bible is suitable for all people, in all ages, in all nations and tribes. But those words that Paul wrote would have been particularly poignant and important to a group that had had their whole world rearranged when they first heard the gospel. Uh, at any rate, the first thing that we will always see in Paul's epistles is that he always included in his epistles specific subjects for his intended audience. He might have addressed a subject because he had received questions, or he may just have included a subject in his epistle because he knew that topic was important in a particular region or area. But in all of his epistles, Paul always chooses subjects for his epistles with his audience in mind. 
And the second thing that we see throughout Paul's letters is that Paul's language, his subjects, his examples, and his references are all consistent with the composition date of the latter half of the first century A.D., and consistent with someone who had traveled widely within the Roman Empire. Said differently, there are no anachronisms or historical inaccuracies in the Pauline epistles. When Paul wrote his epistles, he wasn't writing history per se, but as he used examples and analogies in his writing, he couldn't help but mention things that were part of his readers' lives and times. So though he wasn't writing history, Paul couldn't avoid the historical implications that are present in any letters of the kind he was writing. Yes. For instance, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 32 and 33, Paul describes an incident that occurred shortly after his conversion. Paul says in those verses, quote, In Damascus, the governor under King Aretas had the city of the Damascenes guarded in order to arrest me. But I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through his hands. End quote. So, in a very offhand kind of way, Paul gives us an opportunity to check his historical accuracy. Most commentators think Paul was converted to Christianity around 34 or 35 AD. Well, we know from abundant historical resources that Aretas IV ruled the desert kingdom of Nabatea from 9 BC to 40 AD. In fact, Aretas IV was the most powerful king ever to rule Nabatea. Nabatea included southern Syria, Jordan, the Negev portion of Israel, the Sinai Peninsula, and parts of Egypt and Saudi Arabia. His capital city was Petra, which is in modern-day Jordan. The portion of Syria over which Aretas had complete control includes Damascus. So we know that this casual reference of Paul to a king who ruled over a city where his life was endangered is a historically accurate reference. And Aretas, interestingly enough, actually interacted with scriptural history in another way. One of Aretas' daughters married Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas is well known in the Gospels as the king who ruled in Galilee during the lifetime of Jesus and John the Baptist. Even though he had married Aretas' daughter, Antipas later divorced Aretas' daughter, and then Antipas married the wife of his half-brother, who was named Herod Philip I. So, John the Baptist denounced this marriage in the Gospel of Mark in chapter 6, verse 18. Well, this so enraged the wife who was named Herodias that she later got Antipas to arrest John. And later, of course, we all know from the Gospels that Antipas ordered the execution of John the Baptist. Later on, Aretas attacked Antipas and destroyed Antipas' army. And that was a defeat so profound that Josephus, in his writings, said that the Jews thought that that defeat was divine retribution for Antipas' murder of John the Baptist. In other words, like the gears of a fine watch, we see that scripture meshes very well with the history going on around it at the time. Are there any other observations of this type you would like to make before we close? We don't have a lot of time. Yes. Well, the third thing you see very clearly in Paul's epistles is a concentration on Jesus. At times, Paul would defend his own ministry, but he always did so to demonstrate that he had the qualifications to reveal profound truth, the truth about Jesus. And Paul always displayed a keen understanding of the Jewish scriptures and how those scriptures revealed a picture of Jesus throughout their entirety. Now, one reason that Paul may have displayed such a passion for truth and a keen awareness and understanding of Scripture is because Paul was a student of Gamaliel. 
Now, we only see Gamaliel revealed in two places in Scripture. Those are in Acts chapter 5, verse 34, and in Acts chapter 22, verse 3. In Acts chapter 22, verse 3, Paul describes himself as having sat, quote, at the feet of Gamaliel. Well, Gamaliel was one of the very few people who ever earned the title Rabban, which means our master or our great one, as opposed to the more common title Rabbi, which means my master. Gamaliel was a very famous figure in ancient Israel, and he was highly regarded for his knowledge of the law, the Jewish scriptures, great common sense with great integrity. Like Aretas, he probably had a much more profound impact on our scripture because of the influence that he exercised over the Apostle Paul. And he was the Jewish leader who said in Acts chapter 5 that the Jews should be very careful in their dealings with the disciples after Jesus returned to heaven. His observation to his colleagues was that if the disciples were on a mission from God, fighting with them would be like fighting with God. That's never a wise proposition. Exactly. In all of his letters, Paul demonstrated a profound passion for showing how the Jewish scriptures not only foretold the appearance of the Messiah, but the implications of that appearance. From Paul, we get some of the clearest declarations of Jesus' divinity and the fact that as the Son of God come in the flesh, Jesus had the capability to save anyone who will place their trust in him. In his letters, Paul displays a concentration on Jesus, but he always does so with a view as to why that is such good news for us, for Jesus' people. So again, this is just an amazing display of how Scripture always weaves together an awareness of the supernatural realm, but brings that awareness of the supernatural realm into a sharp focus for how that gives us better lives. And, as you often say, one of the Bible's main attributes is that it shows us how heaven and earth fit together. The first verse of the Bible says that, quote, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, unquote. And the rest of the Bible shows us how these two realms continue to not only exist alongside each other, but how they interact with one another. At times, that interaction is dramatic as when God came to earth in the form of a man. The second person of the Trinity came to earth, walked among us for a little over 30 years, and then finally ascended back to heaven. But that trip was the most important one of all time because it made our eternal salvation possible. Well, that's a good place to end for today. This Paul's Places series is all about helping people see more clearly that the Pauline epistles, the letters contained in the New Testament written by the Apostle Paul, are exactly what they claim to be. They are letters written by one of Christianity's first evangelical preachers to convey important truths to those who had begun to place their trust in Jesus. Those letters most certainly assert Christ's divinity, but far from that assertion being some kind of myth, it is backed up by solid historical evidence and testimony. Let's close with prayer, as we always do. Today, let's listen to a prayer of confession for our sins. The Bible tells us that when we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us those sins. So, confession is not only good for our souls, it is a good way to ensure that we may always go boldly into God's presence to present our needs. Prayer of Corporate Confession Father, perfect in justice, holy in all ways, 
We stand before you to declare that we know you are a great, powerful, and just God. Before time began marking the rise, decline, and coming renewal of creation, you established the laws to govern all seasons and creatures. Your laws are perfect because you are perfect. Lord, we acknowledge today that we have sinned and fallen short of your expectations. We know that we have done this of our own volition, that our transgressions are not caused by anything that you have done or failed to do. As you forgive us, help us to freely forgive those who offend us when they ask for pardon. Let us embrace our brothers and sisters with repentant hearts as readily as you embrace us. We can only do so by knowing the gracious love that you brought to us when Christ came and died for us. He tore apart the veil between your people and you, sent the Spirit to refresh our souls, and so it is in his precious name that we ask for mercy, pardon, and a readiness to serve you. Amen. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com, where... We're not perfect, but our boss is.